Well, good morning, everybody. Um, there are um, two types of songs in this world. There are longing songs and satisfaction songs. I think there's probably more longing songs than there are satisfaction songs, and I think I would put myself in the camp of enjoying the longing songs more than the satisfaction songs because they just seem to be more honest, right? It's a little bit more raw when you come to a longing song. And one of the more famous of the longing songs ever written or ever sang was written and sang by a guy named Mick Jagger. Ever heard of him? Yeah? You know the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. His grammar is terrible in that song. But he's, he's, he's right. He's, 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 he's honest in what he's saying. He tries to find satisfaction in all kinds of things. And if you know the story of Mick Jagger, he tried all kinds of things. But he couldn't find any satisfaction. So we started this series um, in the book of Ecclesiastes last week, um, talking about some of these things. And we're going to go to part two today. If you missed part one, I encourage you to go online, catch part one, because a lot of what we talked about in part one is going to follow us throughout this entire series. But today, surprisingly, we're going to find that the author of Ecclesiastes and Mick Jagger are kind of alike. Yes, yeah, I'm not joking. There's a little bit of similarity between what Mick Jagger's saying and what the author of Ecclesiastes is going uh, to say to us today. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device, I'd love for you to find Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12 today. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. So find, you know, kind of in the middle of your Bible, there's Psalms and then there's Proverbs and then there's Ecclesiastes, if you want to go there. But before we jump into that, I want to point something out that's happening here. Um, it's, it's a literary device that um, authors in the ancient world would use. Authors today still use this. Um, but the author would assume the persona of someone famous and then write from the perspective of that, that famous person. And, and in the text we're going to look at today, the author is taking on the persona of King Solomon, which is why a lot of people think that Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, and scholars debate that in, in scholarly circles, but uh, the literary device is still in effect here. So it would be kind of like you or me trying to convince somebody who, um, who has a lot of money, that doesn't necessarily satisfy them, by, by taking on the persona of Jeff Bezos. Okay, So you take on the persona of Jeff Bezos, you have more money than you can ever spend in your entire lifetime. And you write from his perspective about how even having as much money as you can spend in your lifetime still doesn't satisfy. That's what the author is going to do. He's going to take on, he's going to put himself in, in Solomon's sandals. And he goes, let's talk about whether all the things that Solomon had at his disposal would satisfy the human heart. Okay? So he's going to talk about four different areas. We're going to look at all four of these different areas. The first one uh, we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. He talks about getting wisdom or, or knowledge. He talks about getting smarter. Here's what he says. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom. All that is done under the heavens, the wisdom here's here he's talking about is, is not divine wisdom. He's talking about human wisdom. It's the kind of stuff that could win you jeopardy but it's not going to do you much good other than that, okay? 
What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. Remember, under the sun means a life lived independent God, or as though God doesn't really exist. It's a, it's a secular mindset, living as if earth is all there is. That's what under the sun means. He says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. His second favorite phrase means vapor. It's brief. It lacks substance. And here's his third favorite phrase, a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? Nobody raise your hand because we'll think you're crazy. Right? It's, it's maddening to think about chasing the wind. Dogs chase the wind. That's what he's getting at here. It's, it's, it's meaningless. It's a vapor. It's, it's like chasing after the wind. So he says to himself in verse 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. So this is what he's reflecting. Verse 17, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. We'll come back to that here in a second. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. There's a fun little proverb, right? He says, I'll try to get smarter. I'll try to gain knowledge. I'll try to be smarter than everybody around me. That'll satisfy me. And his conclusion, it didn't satisfy him at all. It's actually the opposite happened. He found himself full of sorrow and grief. It's, it's one of the reasons that the older you get, the more you're tempted to become cynical. Because you see more, you experience more, you gain more understanding, you gain more knowledge. It's, it's maddening. With more knowledge comes more grief. So that's the first area. Second area, he circles back around to this idea of madness and folly in chapter 2, verse 12. Skip ahead a little bit. We're going to come back to the section we're skipping here in a minute. But he's going to say, okay, if getting smarter doesn't satisfy, I'm going to try to be right. Moralism is what he goes after. Verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Madness and folly in the Old Testament is used to describe the crazy foolishness of disobeying God, of making choices that you know would disobey God. So in this context, wisdom is doing what you know God says. Madness and folly is not doing the opposite of that. So he wants to figure out what's right, what's wrong. Here's his conclusion. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. To which we all go, duh. Like wisdom is better than folly. We, we know that. What's right is better than what's wrong. And then light here is a symbol of spiritual discernment. Darkness is a symbol of spiritual blindness. So in the same way that right is better than wrong, spiritual discernment is better than spiritual blindness. And again, I think we'd all agree with that. I think we're all tracking. Here's where we might part ways. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But... I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And so I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. Even though I'm trying to be wise, even though I'm trying to be right, the same fate will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? This too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten, like the fool. The wise, too, must die. 
He says, of course it's better to be right than to be wrong. Of course it's better to be spiritually discerning than spiritually blind. But the wise and the fool both die. Have you noticed this? The spiritually discerning and the spiritually blind both die. A.W. Tozer is dead. C.S. Lewis is dead. In other words, morality doesn't bring satisfaction. Yes, a pastor just said that in church. Morality doesn't bring satisfaction. Here's, here's where we see this happen, probably more than anywhere else. At least this is where I see this happen. Uh, where, where I see this played out more than anything else in any other arena in this world is social media. Okay, And you know, I, I harp on social media a lot, but here I go again. Okay, Social media is a place for people to be right. We all tell people what we think is right, either directly or indirectly. We just come out and say it, or we use jokes and memes and statistics or, you know, videos. And while I'm pointing out that I'm right, I'm going to point out in one way or another that if you don't agree with me, that, I, that you're wrong. And, and, and at the end of the day, we think that will satisfy us. The question I have is, how are we doing how are we doing with that? And I, 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 could, I could show you statistics and case studies, anecdotal stories till I'm blue in the face. But I'll just say this. The verdict is in. It's not going well. It's not going well. Depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, poor job performance, memory loss, poor academic performance, all attributed to increased social media use. It's not satisfying us, church. Even, come on, even if you're 100% right all of the time, you're still going to die. Thought I might get an amen on that one, but I was wrong. <laughs> even the preacher can't be right 100% of the time, right? He comes to the conclusion, being right, morality, doesn't satisfy but there's a third thing that he tries. He decides to build a business. He thinks about building this business. I build it from scratch, grow it up, sell it, make a fortune. This is the American dream section of Ecclesiastes here. Look at how he starts, verse 17. So I hated life. Shoot straight with us. <laughs> I hate my life. In Hebrew, I hate my life means I hate my life. Right? So I, 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 I fake it around others. They think my life's pretty good, but man, at the end of the day, I hate my life. Why? Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. I talked about this last week. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Have you noticed that you reading Ecclesiastes makes you feel worse than how you felt before you started reading it? <laughs> Has anybody noticed this? Did you know it's supposed to do that? It's supposed to do that. Just like the law points us to our need for Christ, Ecclesiastes points us to our need for Christ. Points us to our need for something else than everything that we experience and see under the sun. It talks about building this business. Verse 18, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. 
And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. I'm going to build this business. I'm going to grow it from scratch. I'm going to spend time and energy, blood, sweat, and tears, making it everything it can be, and then I'm going to die and leave it to somebody else. What are they going to do with it? Or how about this? I'm going to spend years and years and years working and saving and working and saving and working and saving and leave all that money to my kids. Is that going to ruin them? Are they going to be able to handle that? Are they going to argue over who gets the coffee table? This is like, I told you Ecclesiastes is, is so practical. Where else under the Bible? Where else in the Bible do you see people wrestling with this? This is real life stuff. Verse 20, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. Anybody there? This too is meaningless. I, I, like I picture him on his deathbed, or him picturing himself on his deathbed, his adult children in the other room arguing over who gets what. And it's just like, what's the point? What's the point? So let's go back to the section we skipped and look at the fourth thing he attempts to find satisfaction. This is chapter 2, verse 1. He basically says, I'm going to have as much fun as I possibly can. Experience as much pleasure as I possibly can. That'll satisfy me. It's called hedonism. And he goes for it. Like, uh, through this next section, I want you to listen for all the eyes and me's and my's. This is the self-indulgent part. This is the, the, the part where, where Mick Jagger sings, I try and I try and I try and I try and I try. This is what he goes. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. The word test there means experiment. So he's going to experiment with every pleasure on the market of his day. And I'll tell you up front, they are the same options we have today. They have not changed over the last 3,000 years. He tells us right up front. But that also proved to be meaningless. He tells us up front that these experiments I'm getting ready to tell you about, they all prove to be meaningless. He gives us the result of his experiments before he tells us what the experiments are. It's all meaningless. And we read that and we go, well, uh, Tim, did he try very hard? Like he must not have tried very hard because, no, believe me, he tried. He tried. Look what he tries. Laughter, I said. Laughter is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? So he went on YouTube to watch funny videos. Watched Late Night with Conan and Jimmy. He watched a, a Kevin Hart comedy special on Netflix. Laughed a lot, turned it off, and the funniest thing happened. Life was the exact same as it was two hours before. Laughter's good. Gives us a break from life, but other than that, doesn't really accomplish anything. So he tries the alcohol experiment. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. So he wasn't getting drunk. 
He still had his faculties. He still had his senses. He was more of a connoisseur than a blackout artist. (laughs) He was just tasting. He was just enjoying. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And again, we know from verse 1, that didn't help. That didn't do, so he tried something else. He tried experimenting with building stuff. I undertook great projects. I built houses. Notice all the plural nouns here. It's houses, not house. I built, all, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. This is the guy who has a house in L.A. and New York and London and a villa on the French Riviera. And all of them make the Wall Street Journal mansion section, if you've ever seen that. And he comes to the conclusion, these are, these are beautiful homes with, with, with gardens and reservoirs and orchards and it's all meaningless. Didn't satisfy. So he tried another way, accumulating stuff. I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. This is a different kind of slavery than, than what we know of from our country. They would have been treated more like employees. So he's maybe think of it as he's building his staff here, but it's still one human being owning another. But it wasn't just people. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces, herds, flocks, more money than kings, more money than people who who rule over provinces. That didn't satisfy either. So he tries the music experiment. In the ancient world, it was expensive to hire musicians. Like only the ultra wealthy could afford to have people come into their house and create music. That's what he tries. I acquired male and female singers. That proved to be meaningless. So he tries the sex experiment and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. We know from other parts of scripture, Solomon had over a thousand women at his disposal. Think about that. Could be with a different woman every night and he wouldn't get back to the first one until about three years later. And what he's saying here is, let me just tell you, multiple partners eventually gets boring. It just didn't satisfy. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Remember a few minutes ago when you were thinking he must not have tried very hard? Let me read verse 10 again. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. (laughs) I refused my heart no pleasure. He tried everything. So, let me just ask here. Don't raise your hand. This is just between you and you. I'm reading this. We're going through this. Is there any part of you that's going, Tim, I'd kind of like to try that. I mean, I would. I, 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 I know he didn't find satisfaction in all that stuff, but I'd kind of like to find out for myself, right? I'd, I'd kind of like to try that. I'd like to have as much money as I possibly could. I'd love to have multiple houses, I'd love to, to have businesses and, and wine and food and all the sex I wanted. I'd kind of like to give that a shot. You see, the fact of the matter 
The fact of the matter is that we have more at our disposal than Solomon ever dreamed of. Your house is better than Solomon's house. His house was magnificent, sure, but he didn't have a little dial on his wall that could cool or warm his house. Solomon's house was hot in the summer and cold in the winter. Solomon's house would not have survived the last two weeks in Kansas. (laughs) Your house is better than Solomon's house. Our restaurants serve better food than Solomon ever ate. Our wine cellars have higher quality wine than Solomon ever drank. He had to hire singers and musicians to come into his house. You have Spotify. You can have any musician, any band come to you and play music for you. That's better than what Solomon had. And and the internet, come on. The internet provides thousands of sexual partners for you if you want them. If you look at what we have at our disposal, you realize, actually, I can try Solomon's experiment here. In fact, some of you have. How'd that go for you? Let me bring it to the present. How's that going for you? You finding satisfaction? Not enjoyment, because all of those things, you, you can enjoy them. But are you satisfied? He wraps up this section, verse 11. He says, Yet when I surveyed, when I considered, when I faced the truth, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. He uses all three phrases <laughs> to say it was all a vapor. It was all a vapor. So, so, so the question we're asking, is there anything under the sun that truly satisfies the human heart? His answer, nope, there's not. And as we talked about last week, that's not enough, but it's not nothing. It's not enough because there, there is a lesson there, right? Hey, parents, have you ever said to your children, listen, you can learn the easy way or you can learn the hard way. Like, you can learn the easy way. Just take my word for it. I know what I'm talking about. This is what you should do. You can learn the easy way, or you just learn the hard way. You just go do your own thing. You come back to me whenever you're 25 and say, Mom, you're right. You can learn the easy way. You can learn the hard way. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing for us right now. You can learn the easy way, or you can learn the hard way. But one way, you're all going to learn. That pleasure pursued for its own sake will never satisfy you. Pleasure pursued for its own sake will never satisfy you. And that's a good lesson to learn. And I think we should just learn it the easy way and take his word for it. But with the lesson comes a longing because the lesson isn't enough. It's not nothing, but it's not enough. Because, again, maybe this is just me, but as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this, like there's something inside of me. I feel like it's hard-baked into me. There's something to me that wants to experience pleasure, right? Like there's something that wants to to pursue it. And even though I pursue it in the wrong ways and it never satisfies, that doesn't mean that that desire goes away. I still want to experience pleasure. So that brings about the longing, okay? If pleasure doesn't, for its own sake, doesn't satisfy, what does satisfy? 
What, what does satisfy? I think it's a great question. And I think we should ask that question. I think we should ask it at different stages of life because isn't it true different things create pleasure in your life at different stages in your life? I think we should ask that over and over and over again. So last week, uh, we talked about C.S. Lewis and, and um, how he wrote a book at the end of his life that was kind of uncharacteristic for him. The work we're more familiar with, at least most of us are more familiar with, is the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I want to read a section. Actually, I'm going to read a couple sections from Prince Caspian as I think this answers the question we're asking today. And, 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 and Lewis says it in a way that only C.S. Lewis can say it. So I'm gonna, I, I want to read this. Lucy is one of the children that is in this um, magical land of Narnia. Aslan's a massive lion that represents Jesus in the story. Here's what Lewis writes. It says, A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met Lucy's eyes with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion. But Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She just rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him, putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise eyes. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? Here it is. Don't miss this. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Again, C.S. only C.S. Lewis could say it like that. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What's he saying there? He's, he's saying the more you grow in Jesus, the more you see who he is and the bigger he becomes. Not because he's getting bigger, but because you're starting to see him for who he really is. And every bit of growth in Christ brings a bigger Jesus into your life. This is why our mission as a church is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Because we want you to see and, and, and understand that you'll never exhaust the bigness of Jesus. You'll never get to the end of him because he's eternal. You'll never get to the end of Jesus like you get to the end of all of these other experiments that we play with. You'll never get to the end of Jesus. And then in verse 24, the author of Ecclesiastes concludes, this is, this is where Mick Jagger and the teacher part ways, okay? Mick Jagger says, I can't find any satisfaction no matter how hard I try. The teacher says, uh, actually, there is a way. Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, underline these words if you write in your Bible, is from the hand of God. There's nothing better than to find satisfaction, he says. There's nothing wrong with that. But where does that satisfaction come from? The, 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 the source is what he's talking about. It comes from the hand 
of God. James says in the New Testament that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. He's echoing what the author of Ecclesiastes says. And then here's the verse I've been waiting for us to get to for two weeks. Here is some hope from Ecclesiastes. Verse 25, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Who, who can find enjoyment without God? Or maybe the, the, the positive way, with him, enjoyment is possible. With him, satisfaction is possible. It's found in him. He's saying the same thing Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Anyone who drinks the water I give them will never thirst. This most remarkable thing happens. At least I've found this in my own life. The most remarkable things happens when, when we find our satisfaction in Jesus. Not only are we satisfied, not only does he keep getting bigger, he makes things more pleasurable than they would be without him. I love that. I love that. And again, I want to turn to, to C.S. Lewis to help us with this. Um, all four children are now with Aslan. They're in a clearing in the forest. There's a huge party going on, and Aslan's right in the middle. If you read these books, you find Aslan right in the middle of parties all, over the, all, all the time. Here's what he says. The crowd and the dance around Aslan grew so thick and rapid that Lucy was confused. She never saw where certain other people came from who were soon capering about among the trees. One was a youth dressed only in a fawn skin with vine leaves wreathed in his curly hair. His face would have been almost too pretty for a boy's if it had not looked so extremely wild. You felt, as Edmund said when he saw him a few days later, there's a chap who might do anything, absolutely anything. There were lots of girls with him as wild as he was. It's a romp, Aslan, cried the youth. And apparently it was. So it turns into a romp, whatever that is, singing, dancing, feasting, laughter. Till all of a sudden, everyone felt at the same moment that the feast ought to be over. And everyone flopped down, breathless on the ground, and turned his face to Aslan to hear what he would say next. That moment, the sun was just rising, and Lucy remembered something and whispered to her sister, Susan, I say, Susan, I know who he is. Who? The boy with the wild face and the curly hair. I know who he is. Who is he? He's Bacchus. You know who Bacchus is? Bacchus is another name for Dionysius, the Greek god of wine. That's why he was so wild. That's why there's so many girls followed him. The boy with the wild face is Bacchus. Yes, of course, but I say, Lucy, what? Here it is. I wouldn't have felt very safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we'd met them without Aslan. <laughs> Again, C.S. Lewis says it in only the way he could say it. Bacchus without Aslan? Scary. Bacchus with Aslan? That's beautiful. Wine without Aslan? Scary. Wine with Aslan? Now that can be beautiful. When Jesus is our source of satisfaction, he brings everything to life. When Jesus is in the middle, when, when you invite him to the party, Jesus satisfies people and intensifies pleasure. And you know what? I cannot sit up here 
And I can't convince you of this. You have to experience this to know it. He intensifies people. He satisfies people and intensifies pleasure. So, so we can receive laughter as a gift from him. I mean, I love sitting around with my wife, with my kids, sometimes with the staff, and just having a good belly laugh. There's nothing better than a good belly laugh with people that you love with Jesus right in the middle of it. We can, have, we can build and design lovely homes as a gift from him that we can enjoy, we can provide for our family, we can share it with other people. It's pleasure intensified when Jesus is in the middle of it. We can experience incredible sexual intimacy with our spouse in the confines of marriage the way he designed it. When he is in the middle of a marriage, he satisfies both people and intensifies pleasure. I've done enough weddings in my day, and from my perspective, not from everybody else's perspective, but from my, my perspective, after the, the, the groom and the bride say their vows and they exit down the aisle, I could swear almost sometimes there's Aslan following behind them, wagging his tail, saying, watch me do something cool here satisfies both people, intensifies pleasure. So here's my encouragement for us this week. My, my, my challenge maybe, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back through these verses at some point. Maybe you get alone by yourself. Go back through these verses. There's, there's 12, 13, 14 different things that he talks about um, where he goes to to find satisfaction, none of which worked. And I just want to encourage you to get, get out a piece of paper, something to write with, and list all of those things out. And then honestly ask yourself the question, am I, fi- am I trying to find satisfaction in any of these things? Am I trying to find satisfaction in, in gaining knowledge? Am I trying to find satisfaction in being right? Am I trying to find satisfaction in building my legacy? through my work or maybe through money? I trying to find satisfaction in alcohol, in accumulating stuff, in sex, in entertainment? Am I, am I honestly, am I trying to find my satisfaction in those things? And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's one or two or three things that you list that you are. And you put an X next to them and, and you take that. This is my encouragement. You take that to Jesus. And you say to him, okay, I, wanna, I want you to be my satisfaction. I want to find my satisfaction in you. I, I want you to fill these areas of my life with true pleasure and true joy. So whatever you want me to do with this, I'll do it. Whatever you say that you want me to do with this, I'll do it. And maybe, maybe you need to take another step. You need to share that with a friend or two. Here's a few areas. I'm, I'm, I've, I've realized I'm looking for satisfaction in outside of Jesus. Would you pray for me? And you ask them to pray with you and for you as, as you start to work and as Jesus starts to work in those areas. Because here's what I know. <laughs> when you ask Jesus to be your satisfaction, it's the craziest thing. He starts to do that. He starts to move. He starts to work and things happen. So ask him. Ask him. Because pleasure pursued for its own sake will never satisfy. Let's just learn that lesson the easy way. Like we can leave here, like leave these doors, walk out this building. Okay, I learned my lesson. I got it. Let's learn the easy, let's learn the lesson the easy way. And then 
let's take it the next step. As followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, let's take it the next step and look to him to satisfy us, to intensify any kind of enjoyment, any kind of pleasure that you and I experience under the sun. And in the same way that we experience those bits and pieces, those moments, those seasons of pleasure, it reminds us, it points us to the day and every tear will be wiped away. No more death. No more dissatisfaction. God will be with his people and we will be with him. And so when we practice what it looks like to find our satisfaction in him, we're actually practicing heaven. We're bringing bits and pieces of heaven to this earth. And it reminds us, oh yeah, there's coming a day when we can tear up Ecclesiastes and throw it in the fire. Because we'll be satisfied eternally, forever and ever. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, as I said last week, thank you for this quirky, um, I think if we're honest, it's a little depressing. Um, it's a little difficult for us to get our hands around sometimes, but I thank you for Ecclesiastes because it points us to this longing that we all have inside of us. And it points us to you. It points us to an answer to all the questions that the author didn't have an answer to, and we do. God, as, as, as we wrestle with this, as we think about what it looks like to pursue our satisfaction ultimately and eternally in you, would you give us the wisdom to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves, not, um, not to experience condemnation, but to experience your spirit's conviction that brings about repentance, that brings about life. And we want to, we want to be people who are obedient. We don't want to just hear what you say to us. We want to be obedient to it. We want to be doers of your word. So would you help us God, continue um, to help us to be the kind of, of, of people, to be the kind of church that wants to pray and wants to be about bringing bits and pieces of heaven to this earth. Whether it's individually, whether it's in our families, whether it's something in our community, as we'll talk about in a few weeks, what it looks like to pursue justice. Would you help us? to be the kind of people, to be the kind of place that is about your work on this earth. And in the end, we know it's for our own good and we know that it's for your glory. So would you do these things? We ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for hanging with me, everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. You're dismissed.